Keeping up on Seattle-area politics is tough. Who has time to sit through a three-hour council meeting and sort out which decisions will affect you most? All those in favor say aye. Aye. Well, what if getting caught up on current events was as simple as getting a cup of coffee with some City Hall insiders who know which stories are hot and which are not? Welcome to Seattle News, Views, and Brews. Thank you for being with us once again on Seattle News, Views, and Brews, the podcast that's all about staying home, staying healthy, and staying connected to the local issues that impact you. I'm Brian Callanan, your host. I'm also a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are my own. It is a Zoom meeting once again to record today's podcast. We have a very special guest coming up at the end of the show, but the most special of all, of course, is co-host Kevin Schofield of Seattle City Council Insight. Kevin, good to see you, bud. Hey, I'm feeling the love here. All right. Thanks for that intro. All right, you better believe it. Special thanks once again to City Grind Espresso, the coffee shop on the first floor of City Hall, shut down for a month and counting due to the, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. They are our background noise sponsor. To the owners, John and Charlie, hang in there. Please support them, other small businesses too during this crisis. And hey, support your local podcast while you're at it on Patreon. Okay. Let's kick it off with right here, right now. All right, so getting into the second full week of April here, Kevin, coronavirus, of course, dominating the headlines still. I want to get a quick overview here. Do you feel like we're at the peak of this crisis in our state at this time when it comes to flattening the curve? We've seen the big field hospital at CenturyLink Field getting dismantled. I know our state is sending back ventilators from the national stockpile to other states. What does that mean to you? Well, so what we're seeing in terms of new cases and hospitalizations is the rate of increase. We're still seeing new cases every day, yeah. but the rate of increase has really flattened out. So at this point, local officials are much less worried about a big exponential increase from here, and they can start to sort of plot it out and see, okay, how much resources do we really need? Right. And based upon that, they're saying, look, there are places in this country that need that field hospital more than we do, particularly places like New York and New Jersey. Yeah. So they're, they're letting go of that. They're, the local officials are pretty comfortable that we're going to stay within our capacity for our, for our local hospitals and our local ICU beds. You know, the personal protective equipment is still a big worry because yeah. there's kind of this Hunger Games thing going on with all the states yeah. competing because the federal government has really not stepped up to try to organize that across the country. Yeah. So, so that's a concern. But, but the rest of the resources they're feeling pretty good at at this point. So, you know, that's a good sign that says yeah. that we really think we got it under control. Now, the local officials are now worried that everybody's going to get a little complacent. Yeah, and, yeah, that's know, always the case. Start right. heading out over the weekends to the park. So, you know, the mayor is closing the parks on the weekends. Now, at least the big parks, not the small yeah. little neighborhood mm-hmm. parks, but the big ones like uh, Green Lake Park, which mm-hmm. everybody's out, you know, walking around and yeah. places with big fields just to make sure that those don't become places where we start spiking the the infection rate again. Yeah, yeah. No, I know a lot of the big events canceled in the early part of the summer even. The Rock and Roll Marathon, usually in that first, second week of June, there's nothing Capital happening Hill through Party. it. Yeah, yeah, through at least mid-June, that stuff's going to be shut down. Let's focus a little bit more on what the Seattle City Council is doing right now. This week, they're looking at an ordinance with regard to restricting increases in commercial rents. This is very important for the commercial property owners and managers out there. Also, the council's working on authorizing the repayment of late rent, that back rent, in installments over the course of a year. This, of course, in response to what's happening with COVID. And Kevin, we've touched on this before. There's a difference between dealing with these commercial properties and dealing with residential properties. 
city can't do this with the residential properties. It does have a lot more leeway with these commercial properties. Right. There's a state law that says that uh, residential rent control is illegal. Yeah. Uh, there is no state law that touches on commercial rent control. So yeah. they can, and this is a place where they can, in fact, still do something. Yeah. Um, and it's a little weird to be doing it just sort of at a city level instead of, uh, you know, more broadly. But yeah. But it's a start. And, uh, you know, this place where Seattle's trying to be out in front of a bunch of these things. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking at the at the issues around um, residential evictions, yeah. you know, the, and the, you know, there are a lot of the same issues going on for residential tenants and for commercial tenants. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, as you shut down a lot of the stuff, you know, the first round of it was a bunch of businesses lost a lot of the revenues, right? Yes. And so they they haven't been able to pay their rent, just as a lot of people who have been furloughed or had their mm-hmm. hours cut back are having trouble paying the residential rent as well. Yep, yep. And I know the council is going to be talking about that. Next week, Council President Gonzalez has a lot more legislation to work on there. I wanted to touch on another piece, too, because the council this week is also working on some emergency child care provisions, trying to tap into the Families Education Preschool and Promise levy, the FEP levy there. It's really interesting to watch this because I know the mayor was really pushing for this at the end of March. Then there was some back and forth with Seattle teachers because Seattle Public Schools was supposed to have them involved, but the teachers said, well, this is a problem with regard to our union negotiations, et cetera. Is this going to help here, do you think, with regard to trying to bring in some of these FEP levy dollars into the situation to try to ameliorate which is a, what is a really bad emergency child care situation right now? Yeah, I, I think this is going to help a little bit. So, you know, a lot of the money from that was supposed to be going to uh, annual preschool programs. Right, A lot right. of those preschool programs aren't happening right now. Right. right. And the preschool programs are really important for the learning that's going on with preschoolers, but they also have a secondary role as childcare during the day of course. While, while parents are at work. So um, it was, you know, pre- the, the city council has had to weigh in and make a tiny little change in, in the law authorizing the, the FEP as yeah. to the uses, potential uses for the revenues. Pretty mm-hmm. small one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're moving forward with that so that, yes, they can go ahead and spend this money and set up some of these child care programs for first responders, for uh, health care workers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we can make sure that the people that we need to help us respond on a day-to-day basis to the coronavirus crisis are really out there doing their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And I get the feeling these community-based organizations who actually run a number of these different preschool uh, schools, they will be involved here somewhat. I know the YMCA has got a big program going on. It feels like those types of organizations are going to be stepping in here where Seattle Public Schools has not been able to do that so far. Yeah, and Seattle Public Schools is really their own bureaucracy. That's a place where, you know, previous mayors have said, I'd really love to have that kind of ruled under city government. And it's not. Yeah. It's different elected officials. Oh, yeah. It's a completely separate bureaucracy in and of itself. It's a state issue too, right. Separate union contracts, separate state set of rules governing it. Yeah. And it's really been bogged down a lot, Mm -hmm. just watching them try to figure out how to do virtual learning and deal with the equity issues around that. They really got bogged down in that. And and the, and the labor issues are are a part of that as well. So they, they've really kind of stumbled around a little bit and yeah. trying to get them themselves. And I think the city government as a whole, the mayor and the city council have done a little better in kind of 
moving forward a lot of things that have needed to happen just to make sure we can get these kinds of programs in place. Yeah, it's it's been frustrating, I know, for a lot of people who need childcare, but this idea of bringing in the FEP, I think, is at least a step in that direction to try to provide some childcare because, yeah, just a really complicated situation for Seattle Public Schools going forward. All right, we're going to talk a little bit more about those issues in the coming weeks, I know, but let's switch it up to now hear this. Okay, so this is where we review some of the action over the last week, listen to what city leaders are saying about it. We're talking big business tax all over again. I know we touched on this last week, but the headline is now, the Seattle City Council will indeed discuss a bill to impose a 1.3% tax on payroll for any Seattle company with payroll above $7 million. No public agencies, nonprofits, or grocery stores involved here. So to do this, the process. There's always a Seattle process, right? This involves the council starting a discussion in a committee. Now, Councilmember Sawant wanted this to start in her Sustainability and Renters' Rights Committee. She talked about the movement for workers that she's all about, but the rest of the council pushed back. Council President Gonzalez talked about why it should be heard in a larger committee, the Select Budget Committee. It's headed up by Councilmember Mosqueda. All council members vote in it. Here's what Council President Gonzalez said about this. This conversation is a serious one. We are facing serious revenue deficits um, at the city of Seattle. And now is the time for us to come together, to try to work together and collaborate in a way that inspires confidence in the ability of local government to truly meet the needs of our constituents, as opposed to drawing fabricated lines of division and separation amongst ourselves. Just to make sure you heard what she said, she said this, this conversation is a serious one. We are facing serious revenue deficits at the city of Seattle. And now is the time for us to come together to try to work together and collaborate in a way that inspires confidence in the ability of local government to truly meet the needs of our constituents, as opposed to drawing fabricated lines of division and separation amongst ourselves. I know a lot of other council members were weighing in on this too, Kevin, but some interesting politics here about who gets to vote on this. And this is a very important part of the process. Yeah, so council member Sawant was really angling here to do a couple of things. First of all, she wanted to get in her committee uh, so that she could control as, as committee chair you know, the agenda, how quickly this got scheduled, the process of looking at amendments, you know, hearings, who got to testify, all that stuff. She wanted, she wanted to be able to control that. Second part is that um, the rules for, for council committees have changed this year. In previous right. years, any council member could show up to any council committee, regardless of who was chairing it, and vote on amendments and things like that. So mm-hmm. if there's an amendment that you really wanted, any, any council member could show up and get an amendment kind of uh, looked at for any bill in any committee. And if you got enough other council members to show up, they could actually control which amendments got, ex- got moved forward in, in, in committee. But this year, the rules are different. This year, the only people who can vote in committee for an amendment or moving a piece of legislation out of committee are the official members of the committee. And for almost all the committees, there's only five of them, mm-hmm. right? Including Sawant's committee. And two of those five are Sawant and Councilmember Tammy Morales. Yep. And, and then the two of them are really joined in the hip on pretty much everything they're doing. And they're both co-sponsors yep. of this quote-unquote Amazon tax, right? Yeah. So if this landed in Sawant's committee, then two of the five votes are her and Morales, yeah. right? which means they have an enormous amount of sway over what happens with this bill. Yeah. So now it ended up in the, in the budget committee where all nine committee members are members of it and can vote. Mm-hmm. Right? So now 
Sawant and Morales have a much smaller amount of control and they really have to work a lot harder on their colleagues to lobby for any particular changes that they want. Yeah. And just looking at that, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball on this one, but I do know what I heard in that meeting. There are a few different things. I thought Councilmember Herbold brought up a very interesting point. She really said, you know, I bristle at the thought that the only way we're going to get progressive revenue bills to pass is through Councilmember Sawant's committee. I, uh, she's been a supporter of progressive revenue for a long time. Flip side of that coin, Councilmember Peterson was in support of voting to bring this to committee, but not necessarily to express his support for a tax like this. So help us out with this, Kevin. I think there's still a lot to be decided with this in terms of how this is going to go through committee, what that conversation is going to be like. And and whether it even comes out of committee. True, I, that, true. It, it, you know, this is a really interesting time to be putting forward a $500 million a year tax. Yeah, especially right? when you can't get public comment during these meetings. And you can't get public comment. And actually, you know, by, by some reckoning, based upon the governor's prohibition on uh, – uh, on on public agencies taking action, yeah. they may not even be able to move this forward at all. Right? Yeah. They may not be able to have hearings on this. That's yeah. that. There's some some legal doubt about that. But you know, th- there's you know all there's a variety of views even within this you know fairly left leaning council as to whether it makes sense as it looks like we're going into recession, maybe a depression, mm-hmm. uh, to suddenly be putting in a huge new payroll tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's, you know, there's other issues related to this as well, such as the fact that the way this bill is written, it was designed specifically so that people wouldn't be able to file a referendum against it. Mm, right. right? In, yeah. in fact, it, it specifically invokes the COVID emergency to say this is an emergency bill that you know is for the protection of the public health and safety, right. which is how you actually bypass the the referendum capability. Yeah, right? yeah. And you know, and if this were just a bill about you know two hundred million dollars for COVID relief, maybe that would make sense. Mm-hmm. But this is you know that that's just the first little part of it. This is really a bill that's about five hundred million dollars a year of payroll tax in perpetuity, mm-hmm. right? So to invoke the COVID emergency as as the reason for this bill and the reason that it should be exempt from referendum, that's really, that, that's a hard sell. Yeah. So I yeah. think, and, and I think we're going to see a lot of pushback from a lot of corners mm-hmm. as to, as, and by the way, you know, the business community in Seattle is already mobilizing to oppose this. Oh, you bet. No, I, we're going to hear a lot more with this. And I know that council member Sawant publicly called out, Council member Muscata, hey, let's get this thing started, whatever else. She's very anxious to start this conversation, but I think we're seeing both of those sides start mashing against each other. So still a lot ahead there. I wanted to touch on one thing briefly before we move to our next segment. Homeless concerns, a lot happening here too. I know Council member Morales is working on a budget proviso that would kind of change the way the navigation team has been removing encampments. They're trying to figure out a way to, at least council member Morales is trying to figure out a way to avoid these sweeps, except for a few specific circumstances, trying to make sure they can remove these encampments only under a very narrow set of circumstances. So I I think they're trying to rein in the NAV team a little bit here. Uh, Kevin, let's talk about this briefly. NAV team trying to get reined in. I know the council and the mayor has been talking about getting some more beds coming in online. In terms of the homeless response from the city in this time of COVID, what are you seeing right now? Well, so, you know, in terms of getting more beds coming online right now, the, the mayor's office and the city council and all the folks are kind of talking all around each other about how many new beds we're bringing on. Yeah. What they're really trying to do right now 
the immediate uh, effort is to try to get larger social distancing in the existing shelters. So yeah. they're, they're adding more space, but they're also uh, 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 de-densifying the ones that they have right now. So they have fewer people in each shelter so they can put the cots and beds farther apart. Right. And so they really don't become hotspots of COVID transmission. Yeah. But that means that they're not really adding capacity per mm-hmm. se yeah. in the homeless shelters that we have right now. They're, they're just really kind of spreading out. Yeah. And so there, some people are playing a little fast and loose with the numbers as to, yeah. you know, how much capacity we really have with yeah. this. And there's a big debate about whether the most important thing to do or one of the most important things to do right now in terms of the homeless response and where, you know, where that intersects with the COVID emergency is to get more of our homeless population off the streets into shelters. Should we have more shelter tents? Should we be even more aggressive in finding places where you can set up at least short-term shelters. Yeah. But then it just kind of raises the larger question of, well, if we can do it now with a COVID response, yeah, why, can't, why haven't we been able to do that over the last five years? Yeah, yeah, right? that's a great, great point. And I know there's a lot still ahead with that. We're going to be checking in on that over the next several weeks. I know there's been a push to try to involve more hotels and motels. So a lot still ahead on that homeless issue with regard to COVID. Let's switch gears one last time here to what's next. Kevin, I wanted to talk about a deep dive you did on the topic of the West Seattle Bridge. You actually were able to interview Seattle Department of Transportation's Bridge Group Supervisor, Matt Donahue. You you tackled three questions here. We've probably got about a good five minutes to dive into this, I think, in terms of why do the cracks appear? What the city has been doing about this? What are the options ahead here? Can we break some of this down, please? Yeah, you bet. And one of the things that really sort of led to this this week was uh, the Department of Transportation released a bunch of their annual inspection reports going back to 2013 when they really started seeing new issues with cracks in there. And, you know, consultant reports they had from different consultants that came in and inspected those. So there's suddenly kind of this flood of new information. I spent a bunch of time this week going through all that, and then I got to talk to Matt Donahue. And good on them for the transparency, for sure. Yeah, you know, good on them for doing that. That was a a great thing to do, and hopefully they'll keep that up moving forward. So there's really three kinds of cracks in the bridge. Mm -hmm. And first of all, it's worth saying, Concrete cracks. Yeah. This does. I mean, we see this in sidewalks. We see this in other places. And there's a long list of reasons why concrete cracks. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, over time, concrete will lose some of its moisture, lose Mm -hmm. some of the water, and it just kind of shrinks. It also, you know, if it's in a structure up above the air, it will creep. It'll kind of sag a little bit on its own. It does that more kind of initially than over long term. But you know, there's, there's some sagging. There's thermal expansion and contraction, which may actually be different in the shady side of a bridge from the sunny side of a bridge. Okay, yeah. Um, and, you know, the inside and the outside. So thermal contraction expansion is kind of this interesting thing. There's potential seismic activity. There's wind putting stresses on it. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's all sorts of things that go in, into kind of why concrete could, could crack. So what they first saw back in 2013 mm-hmm. was cracking in the bottom, Yep. And cracking up at the top, the concrete slab just below the deck where that everybody that all the cars drive on. Right, right, right. And they never figured out, they still haven't figured out why the concrete up on top was cracking. And that may just be thermal expansion and contraction because it gets sun and it gets yep. cold and, and different levels that. of that sun and cold and, depending on and, where you are. Yeah. And the bottom they have some theories and it's probably Matt Don who said it's probably a combination of things, but they're not really sure what sort of but what it really got concerning is when the cracks in the bottom started working their way up the side. And that's mm-hmm. when they started in 2013 doing 
and a more frequent inspections and really kind of really trying to understand more and monitor more what was going on with that cracking. Yeah. And then what happened uh, earlier this year, back yeah. in February, yep. uh, was the, 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 the cracking up the sides and the sides are really an important structural component of the bridge. Mm-hmm. Bottom a little bit, the top a little bit, but the sides, when you see cracking there, then you really start worrying about the structural issues of the bridge. Yeah. The cracking of the sides started accelerating and then they realized on March 20th that some of the cracks in the side were now only about a foot away from the cracks in the top. Yeah. And they said, if those cracks in the side reach the cracks on the top, then suddenly you have cracks all the way around, bottom sides and top. Yeah. That could really precipitate, you know, some kind of imminent failure of the structure. That doesn't mean the whole right. thing is suddenly going to come, you know, crashing no. down, but some kind of imminent failure. So we need to actually close the bridge now. Yeah. Figure out how we're going to shore this up, how we're going to fix it, and what the plan is moving forward from there. Yeah, and I know they're trying to work on this Pier 18 you had mentioned first, which we hadn't heard about before, but it's got something locked up in terms of its lateral bearing there, its ability to go back and forth, and that's a big issue. They've got to tackle that first and then uh, study a few other parts, but we're hoping by the end of this month of April maybe to have some more information. Yeah, so I think at the end of the month we'll, we'll have an issue. So the first thing you have to do right now is, and this just came out you know, in my interview with, with Matt yeah. uh, a couple of days ago, is that uh, Pier 18, which is not, it's, it's a little farther off to the side. It's not one of the, the piers of the main span. Mm-hmm. You know, the way these bridges are built is the, you know, the steel and concrete don't go straight into the piers. Yeah. They sit on these flexible platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, you know, allow there to be some flex in the bridge because yeah. there's wind, you know, there's earthquakes, you know, seismic activity, there's a mm-hmm. bunch of different things that happen. So there's always going to be a little bit of movement in yeah. the bridges, right? And having these kind of flexible, they're not, they're not really rubber, but they're rubberish kind of flexible, you know, platforms that you can sit on, allow it to move. But sometimes those things, you know, will lock up. Yeah, meaning yeah. that they don't move in a direction they're supposed to move in. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with, with one of these platforms, that some of the side movement on the bridge isn't happening. So they got to go fix that first before they go do things that might create other you know stresses on the bridge and might cause some movement on them. So they have to yeah. go fix that. Then they can shore up the parts in the middle that are really where they see the cracking. Then they can really get the crews in there and start working through the plan for, you know, what is this really... You know, what it's really going to take to fix it. And, you know, Matt Donahue told me it's not just fixing the sides, right? They're yeah. going to have to fix the entire system and, and, and because there is cracking in the top and the bottom and the sides now. Right, right, right. So much ahead still with that. Kevin, thank you for that breakdown. We will hear a lot more at the end of the month of April. So we'll keep on tracking that. Okay, finally today, let's take a look at what's in the oven. We always talk about baked goods on the show. Usually, Kevin's baking something, but we have a special guest this week, Vicki Finson. She's the Vice President for Blood Services at Northwest Blood Works. Thank you so much for being with us, Vicki. Thank you, Brian, for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Now, normally during this segment, Vicki, we involve the sound of Kevin and me chewing on some tasty treat he's baked. So I'm very <laughs> sure our listeners appreciate you being here. And, and here's the big question. You've seen plenty of people giving blood in your career. What is the most popular pastry item people choose after they've given blood? Unquestionably chocolate chip cookies. Oh, man, I was going to go with the bear claw. Okay, okay. Nope, it's the chocolate chip cookie. Now, right now, all of our our goodies for donors are individually wrapped, Mm -hmm. of course, for everyone's safety. Um, we have a variety of cookies, but chocolate chip is always the one we run out of the most. That's the big and one. And, you know, well, 
I have a friend who taught me if it doesn't have chocolate, it's not worth eating. <laughs> well, we'll have, That's a fair we'll point. Have, yeah, Kevin, we'll have, we'll have you working on some more of those right away. I, I, Kevin is a, an avid baker of these things. Uh, and, and by I, the way, I should, I should mention that yes. back in the uh, early 90s, I was actually a volunteer at, at uh, the Blood Center. And I worked in the, in the canteen, handing out cookies and, and juice. And it was great fun. I loved doing it. And I, you know, even back then, 30 years ago, the chocolate chip cookies were, in fact, the most popular. <laughs> and Something's right. going to change. change. Verified, verified. Hey, and Kevin will bake up some more right away. Vicki, I wanted to talk also about the need for blood donations right now, how people can donate safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. We haven't seen a ton of headlines about this, but this is always, always an important story. It is. And we have done so much over the last month, uh, actually six weeks. Uh, we have uh, all of our centers open extra hours. Uh, we have gone to appointment only to ensure mm -hmm. that we've got good social distancing in place. We used to draw about 60% of our blood, our blood out on mobiles. We're not running any mobiles right now. So, Vicki, in terms of people actually giving blood, they want to do it here locally. Where can they do that? I know you're trying to work some of the mobile action back into the scheme here. So what's up? Exciting news this week. We are starting our pop-up center at guess where? Uh, tell me, tell me, tell me. I can't wait. T-Mobile Park. So oh, the Mariners that's awesome. have stepped up. Um, we're going to be there about three times a week for all of April and probably into May as well. And they are giving all of the donors tickets to Mariners games, which is just amazing. Man, it always has felt like blood, giving blood, going to a Mariners game. But I, I think this will be a heck of a lot better. <laughs> Vicki, that's a, that's a great idea there. And I really appreciate that. I know it's been a challenge in some ways to try to bring people in to give blood. But it sounds like people are trying to step up. And local businesses like this doing that, that that's great news. It has been amazing to me how the Pacific Northwest folks have stepped up and are continuing to step up. People taking time when they're sheltered in place and they're still there going out, they're putting their mask on and they're coming to our blood centers. They know that we've made the place very, very safe, good social distancing, good hand hygiene, all of those great things. Mm -hmm. And they are stepping up. And something I want to add, yeah. uh, if people actually donate at the pop-ups, which start this week, mm -hmm. Mariners are um, providing some really good, yummy, tasty food. So maybe there'll be something even more than chocolate chip <laughs> Who knew? Well, that, that is really, really great news. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us on Seattle News, Views and Brews. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to the community for helping uh, keep the blood supply safe. Thanks again. And thank uh, you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. There we go. Stay safe, guys. All right. We'll do. Too. Uh, thanks a lot, Vicki. Okay. Thank you for joining us on Seattle News, Views and Brews. Thanks, as always, Kevin Schofield. Thank you, Brian. All right. Next time you want to know what's going on in local politics, give us a listen. Find out what's brewing. Reach us via email at seattlenewsviewsandbrews at gmail.com. You can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Please support us on Patreon if you like what you're hearing. And thank you so much for listening. Seattle News Views and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2020. <laughs>